Welcome to the Billingshurst Family Church Podcast. For more information or to support our work in Billingshurst and the surrounding areas, please visit billingshurstfamily.church. Good morning, how are we all? Who has put their Christmas decorations up already? Yes, Nina, hand up, Russell, hand up straight away. Uh, well done. Uh, I have a slight confession to make. We did ours yesterday. I felt guilty. Uh, it was November. Uh, I felt very, very bad uh, about it. I said to Claire, she wasn't so bothered. Me personally, I had to ask for forgiveness afterwards. Uh, but it's okay because today is December. It's December the 1st, so anything goes. I was walking around a shop a couple of weeks ago, and they were playing Christmas music, and I thought, that's got to be illegal, you know? But from today onwards, it is absolutely fine. So if you want to put your decorations up today... God says it's okay. That's not a word. I think, I think. Okay, so that's okay. Um, But let me tell you what it is that we're doing today. Today we're moving on in a short mini-series. Craig started us last week uh, by looking at, basically the the mini-series is called Seeking God. It's it's based on Advent because we're now in the time of Advent. Uh, Anybody open their Advent calendar today for the first time? Yeah, okay, one or two people. Oh, good. Uh, my two kids so did. Uh, they opened their first one this morning and then got their chocolate. And then there's another one at lunchtime because uh, there's another having. And there's another one at dinner. It's called grandparents, basically. Uh, so they're, they're going to enjoy uh, doing that. But it is Advent. And so we're doing a mini Advent series. Craig started last week by looking at a story uh, of Anna and Simeon and what we can learn uh, from them. And these are two characters who appear in a narrative leading up to Jesus' birth. And so today what we're going to do is look at another set of characters in the narrative of Jesus' birth, the story of Advent. And then I think, Craig, it's you next week again, isn't it? And then uh, somebody else, Neil, maybe, uh, the week after. And in each of these little mini-series, we're looking at one character or two characters or three characters, and we're asking ourselves the question, what is it that we can learn from them? How is it that, that their example can help us to grow in our walk towards Jesus? And the aim would be that you never really hear a sermon at Billingshurst Family Church which doesn't in some form or another help you to go closer to Jesus. That's, that's the challenge. And so therefore, with that in mind, um, today we're going to look at the next characters in the story of Advent. Today we're looking at the Magi, okay, or, or the Free Kings, depending on your, your tradition and your beliefs, uh, etc. So we're going to ask ourselves two things. What I want to do, first of all, is just talk a little bit about the history. Who were these guys? Uh, what were they doing, etc. There'll be some stuff in there that some of you will already know. It might be new uh, for some of you, but it's a straightforward bit of history, uh, if you like. But then more importantly, so we'll spend a bit more time on it, uh, we're going to look at well, what is it that we can learn from them? How can our relationship with Jesus grow by taking inspiration from their story. And that's by far the most important part uh, of it. So, uh, with that in mind then, what I want to do is start off by showing you an image. Okay, it's an image uh, that the likes of which we have all seen many, many times before. A classic Christmas card, uh, if you will. A nativity scene as seen many, many times. Uh, Over on the left-hand side, we've got Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus and some animals in the background. On the right-hand side, the three kings. We've all seen an image like this uh, beforehand. So, um, because it's Christmas, we're coming up to Christmas, let's have a little bit of fun. I'm going to make this slightly interactive. Okay. Uh, What I'd like you to do is turn to the person next to you, Okay, and I'm just going to give you 30 seconds to do the following thing. I want you to look at that picture, please, and pick out something that's correct about that picture, but then something that you think is incorrect and say why. If you hadn't already guessed I'm a secondary school teacher, it's by now painfully obvious. Okay, so 30 seconds, please. Just talk to the person next to you. 
Okay, that is give or take about 30 seconds. So, do not worry if you got any of that right or wrong. It's purely for a bit of fun, a bit of interactivity. Anybody feeling brave and want to shout out something that is correct? Russell. The baby is the baby is too young. Is that correct? Okay. Anything else that's correct? Oh. The what, sorry? They bowed, they did. The Bible tells us, and we'll see it in a minute, that they bowed down towards, before Jesus. Perfectly. Anything else that's correct? They're presenting gifts. Biblical, absolutely. Anything that's incorrect? Yes, Doug. Oh, Joseph has got like a halo or something. Okay, yeah, okay. We'll take that one. Interesting, yep. Nina, is that your hand up or are you just doing your hair? Oh, we don't know if there were three kings, and that's right. That's one of the things that we're going to talk about uh, today. Again, like I say, don't worry if there's anything that you weren't quite sure. It really doesn't matter. It's just to show a classic image of who the three kings, uh, the magi, were. So what we'll do is we'll pick that apart a little bit, but then, as I say, most importantly, ask the question, what can we learn? Uh, from them. So let's read. If you've got a Bible and you want to join in, it will come up on the screen. Uh, we're reading from Matthew chapter 2. Um, interestingly, Craig last week talked about Anna and Simeon, and their story was in Luke. Our classic nativity story is actually an amalgamation, a joining of some bits from Luke and some joinings from bits from Matthew, putting it all together. So that makes sense if, if Craig was preaching from Luke last time, but this time uh, we're preaching from Matthew. So it says this in Matthew 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I may too go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen where it rose ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, of frankincense, and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route." So before we ask ourselves the question, what is it that we can learn about these guys? A few lessons from history, if you like. A little bit about who these guys were and what they were doing. So firstly, as somebody said, I think it was Nina, they may not have been kings. They probably weren't kings. Somewhere along the line in the course of our history, we had songs like We Free Kings of Orientar, you know, one in a taxi, one in a car, uh, and that sort of thing. So, so somewhere along the line, we started thinking that these guys were kings. That's probably just something that was infused into our history uh, in the past. The word magi is a word that is not a historical one, we still use it now. It's not one of those words that belongs in the past. If you look it up in a dictionary, it's still there now. It means wise men who are priests of an ancient religion down in western Iran. 
Now, if your geography is any good, if you picture where Western Iran is and where Israel is, Western Iran is to the east of Israel. So it makes complete sense that these are wise men uh, from the east. So these guys probably weren't kings, but they were priests of this ancient religion. Uh, and part of the, uh, the records on this are very dodgy, but part of the, the, the beliefs of this religion is that there would be a king born, a king who would triumph over good and evil, and that there were some prophecies that indicated it's all a bit hazy because this is going back thousands of years there were some prophecies that indicated that this king would be born and the sign of him being born was, was a star. And as part of their religion, these guys would have been astrologers. And so therefore, bearing in mind that they are astrologers, they, are, they know how to pick out a difference in the stars. They know how to identify when one is unusual, uh, for example. They would have read prophecies that said about a king being born who was triumphing, over, triumphing good over evil. And so therefore, they'd have put two and two together. And it makes total sense that they would have thought, well, let's, let's go and see who that king is. But they probably weren't kings. They were just wise men who were then following a prophecy, which raises a question, where did the, the thing about them being kings uh, come from? So when the word magi entered the UK, that is part of the Latin language originally, it came in, it was translated uh, as kings originally, um, but also there could be a biblical thing behind it as well. Common explanation in Psalm 72, uh, it says this, which is coming up on the board. May the kings of Tarshish and of distant shores bring tribute to him. May the kings of Sheba and Seba present him gifts. May all kings bow down before him and all nations serve him. And there are other passages in the Bible which talk about kings will bow down to Jesus. And so somewhere along the line, over the last few hundred years or thousand years, the Magi were turned into free kings. But we don't know if that was actually true. There were certainly wise men, there were certainly astrologers, and they were certainly very interested to see what this special star was foretelling. And so that's, that's who they were. Secondly, we always say that there are three of them, okay, the free kings or the free wise men. There probably weren't. Okay, we think that that misconception, there might have been three, but there are probably more likely to be more. We think that the misconception came in because simply because they brought free gifts, that's all. Whereas in reality, Magi is a plural term. It could have been any number. It could have been 10. It could have been 20 of them. We just don't know. But there were wise men, and there were certainly uh, more than one of them. Over the course of history, they've been given names, uh, the three kings. You might have heard the names Melchior, Caspar, uh, Balthazar. No essence, no evidence in history about the fact that they were called those. Those might have just been names made up. It's all a little bit hazy uh, of history. But the reality is there were wise men. There could have been any number of them. And then thirdly, in our journey of trying to find out interesting things about these guys before we learn what we can apply from them, what the trouble is that sometimes we see images like this. And here's a classic nativity scene. We've got shepherds on the left-hand side. We've got Joseph and Mary and baby Jesus. And then there they are on the right-hand side, the kings, the wise men, uh, whatever we want to call them. And it's easy to look at that and to think, well, they were there when Jesus was born. But actually, that's not what the Bible says. When they first met Jesus, Jesus was probably one or two years old. You know, it's one of those surprising things that we don't really think about because we've always grown up looking at images uh, like this. What's the evidence uh, for this? So if we go back to Matthew chapter 2, uh, it says this, after Jesus was born, after Jesus was born, note the use of the word after, after, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judah, uh, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. So let's think about the chronology of this slightly. If these guys, the wise men, saw the star rising when Jesus was born, but they're in western Iran, 
a quick look on Google Maps tells me that that's 1,300 miles away. So they probably didn't get there on the night Jesus was born. You know, in reality, that journey would have taken months, you know, maybe six months, something like that. They started the journey, presumably when Jesus was born, but they would have actually got there at least six months later. Then in verse 10, it says this, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child. Notice it doesn't say on coming to the stable. You know, it says on coming to the house, uh, when they saw Jesus, uh, they were overjoyed. So they actually went to visit Jesus' child at home. And then also, verse 12, uh, from Matthew 2, and then verse 16 as well. Having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learnt from the Magi. So if the Magi were there on the night that Jesus was born, and then they were supposed to go and see Herod shortly afterwards, why was Herod saying, kill all the boys who are under two years old? That didn't really make any sense. The only possible conclusion from all of these things uh, is that the wise men probably saw Jesus somewhere between when Jesus was six months up to a year and a half to two years old, something like that. Now, all of that is interesting, and maybe some of you knew lots of that stuff already, but it's interesting, but it's not, it's not really why we preach. We don't stand here and preach and do sermons because we want to talk about facts. Those are interesting. But the real thing is, well, what do we learn from all of this story? Now that we've got a bit of a better picture about who the wise men were and what they were doing, uh, and, and a bit of history behind it, what can we actually take from them? So this is the main part. Of, so this is why we're doing uh, the Advent series uh, in the first place. So to break this down a little bit, we've got the classic three points uh, coming up, the three points of application, and we'll talk about them in a little bit more detail. Things that we, interesting things rather, first of all, about the wise men. Interesting thing number one, just a quick recap of the first part, they probably weren't kings, we've said that. Number two, there could have been lots of them, could have been, okay? Uh, and then number three, also, they didn't see Jesus until, probably, he was between six and 24 months old. But what's even more interesting is this. What can we learn from them? Three things. Number one, they traveled a long way to meet Jesus where he was. Let me come back to that uh, in a second. Number two, they took risks, and I'll come back to that one in a second as well. And then number three, uh, they gave sacrificially. So what I want to do for the rest of this sermon is ask us the question, what can we learn from the example of the wise men? And it's going to be broken down into those three points. So let's break those down a little bit further uh, still. So point number one, they traveled uh, a long way. How long? Okay, we've got a little map here. I mentioned um, Google Maps earlier on. Uh, here we go. There's Jerusalem on the left-hand side. Remember, they went to see Herod first and then went to Bethlehem. Vaguely on the right-hand side is Western Iran. Uh, something in the region of 1,300 miles. You know when you look up on Google and you click on directions um, and it says, are you travelling by car? Or, or by foot, uh, there's no option saying camel, uh, but if there was, I'd be willing to bet that it would say something in a region of months, you know, it's 1,300 miles, 10 miles a day, 130 days, four months, at least four months, something like that. So it would have taken them a long time uh, to have got there. What, what can we learn from this? I suppose we need to come back to the point of, what were these wise men doing? In their religion, they saw Oh, they knew about a prophecy that said that a star was going to rise and it was going to be linked to the birth of a saviour king. So what did they do then? 
Did they just sit still and think, great, this is happening, we'll just sit here and watch what happens? Or did they think, let's go, let's, let's go and find out uh, what's going on? So what I want to do to illustrate this is to tell a bit of a personal story. Okay? There's going to be parts of this story that, where some of you will probably think, oh, that's dodgy, you know, disagree with that bit, something like that. Okay? You'll see why when I get on to that part in a minute. It's going to bring back some memories of something that was happening like 11 years ago. Um, so I'll come back to that in a second. But if, with, with all of this controversy, with any part of disagreements, let me frame the story within this. Before this thing that I'm going to tell you about in a second happened, I couldn't speak in tongues. But after it happened, I could. So whatever you think about what I'm about to tell you and whether or not it was right or wrong, that much is true. Okay. So hopefully that can frame uh, what I'm about to say. So go back 11 years uh, or so ago now. 2008, I've been a Christian about 15 years uh, by then, but I'd never spoken in tongues. I tried, you know, I remember friends of mine saying, oh, they've heard preachers say that if you want to speak in tongues, all you do is say banana backwards, you know, and they are speaking in tongues, you know. Uh, and, 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 uh, you can't make it up. I remember sitting on the end of my bed and then trying, because some people say, oh, just try it. Just, so I remember sitting on my bed and going, but, but nothing would come out, like something was blocked and, and nothing was happening at all. And I thought, you can't, you can't force this, you can't make this happen. Obviously, I was praying about it, don't get me wrong, but it was like a physical block there that was stopping me uh, from doing it. And this was 2008, and around about the middle of 2008, there was a big Christian news thing going on. Remember the Lakeland revival? Todd Bentley? Right, some of you now are going... Right, controversial. Okay, the Lakeland Revival. Uh, basically, for those of you um, who uh, didn't know about it, back in 2008, there was a guy called Todd Bentley who went to lead a mini revival in a church in Florida, Lakeland Church. And what happened was, was God started breaking in. Okay, different opinions. But God started breaking in, and then he ended up staying there for about four months. And there were stories of loads of healings, and there were stories of people being raised from the dead, etc. There are some people who debate those stories. I don't want to now get into the theory of whether or not that was right or wrong. That's not what the point of this story is. But what I'd heard at the time uh, was that there was somebody who was a friend of this guy, and he led a church up in Dudley. And this guy was going out to be a part of this movement, and then he'd come back to, to Dudley uh, to, to basically bring some of the spirit back with him. Now, like I say, at this point, you might be thinking, that sounds dodgy, it really does. But I was thinking, do you know what? I'm going to go and see. So I drove up to Dudley, which is near Wolverhampton, uh, stayed a night of a, with a friend there, went to this, this church service with this guy who'd just come back from... Uh, there was hundreds of people there, basically, and this guy was, was going along, and people were getting bammed, right? If you remember this thing 11 years ago, you'll remember this. Uh, and people were like, falling on the floor and stuff. Nothing significant happens to me, but at the end of this meeting, I remember, bearing in mind I didn't know anybody there or anything, at the end of this meeting, I remember thinking, I'm not happy with this. Because for a while now, I'd wanted to speak in tongues, but couldn't. So I went and sought the guy out at the end when he was on his own. Uh, and I said to him, look, I want to speak in tongues, but I haven't been able to. I've prayed for it, but nothing has happened. Do you mind praying for me? And, and so what he did was he put his hands just here and prayed and said, start talking. And it just came, just like that. And I went up to him afterwards and said, what, what happened then? And he said, I remember very clearly, he said to me, he felt like when he was praying, something was unblocked here. And then it just flowed. 
You know? And like I say, the jury is out about whether or not some people will have big resentment about this whole Lakeland thing, about what's happening 11 years ago, whether it was right or whether it was wrong. That's not the point of the story. The, the point of the story, really, uh, is this. I'd heard a rumour of God moving somewhere, and I remember saying to my friend, after, saying a friend of mine afterwards, I said, oh, I started speaking in tongues because of this. And this friend of mine said to me, but why did you have to go to, to Dudley? Nobody goes to Dudley. Yeah. Why did you have to go to Dudley uh, to, go and, uh, and to go and receive that? You could have received that gift by staying in Worthing, where I was living at the time. And I said to him, do you know what? Of course, you're right. Of course you are, because God will, can come and move, of course. But if you hear a story of God moving somewhere, why not go and find out what's going on? And that's really the, the, the point of a story. Like I say, debates about Lakeland aside, if we hear of God moving somewhere, don't we want to go and be a part of it and see what's going on? I remember when Chris Kilby came a couple of years or so ago and he was talking about the ministry they were doing out on the streets in Southampton and people were getting, getting healed and stuff. And as a part of me thinking, oh, I work on Saturdays, so it's tricky. But as a part of me thinking, oh, that'd be great. Just go and be a part of it. You know? And some people did, of course. And I think that's brilliant. If we hear of God moving, you ever in a service where the minister says, oh, there's lots of people receiving ministry over here, God is moving over here, and you're over there? And do you think to yourself, I want to go be a part of that? You know, maybe we should, maybe we should. The, the, the point being that if you see or hear of God moving somewhere, instead of just kind of sitting around and expecting God to come to us where we are, why don't we try and, why don't we try and go and find Jesus where he's at? You know? And like I say, controversy aside, uh, I hope there's a challenge uh, in there somewhere. The Magi thought that they knew their prophecies, they knew that God was moving somewhere. They thought that Jesus, the Saviour, was being born. They didn't sit there waiting for him to come to them. They went and found him. And that journey took easily a year round trip-wise. took a long time. So first thing, hopefully, that's a bit of a challenge to us. When we see or when we hear of God moving, do we just sit here doing nothing or do we want to go and investigate? Do we want to go and uh, find out? Secondly, uh, second uh, big challenge. So they faced um, personal risks. So, um, okay, they faced personal risks. Let's think about the Magi for a second. So they were probably reasonably wealthy. They'd have had to have been because, like I say, this journey there and back would have taken over a year potentially. Therefore, they'd have had to have taken money with them and provisions with them and probably cameras. Safe to say they're probably pretty wealthy. But what they did was they left all of that behind, took some stuff with them that they needed, but they went off on a journey where they didn't know the following. They didn't know where they were going to sleep every night. They didn't know where their food was going to come from. They didn't know where their water was going to come from. For some of us, camping for four nights at West Point is a risk. You know? uh, these guys did it for like four, five, six months chasing an ancient prophecy that they vaguely heard of. You know? um, so they took a massive risk following what they thought was the right thing to do what well, they felt like God was telling them uh, to do. So, so therefore, let me challenge us all about this. Are we prepared to take a risk with our Christian faith? Now, let me tell you what taking a risk isn't. Okay, so I want to show you a picture of this. Um, to be honest, there's not much spirituality behind this. It's just an entertaining picture. I came across this picture a while ago. This was something that was big in the 1930s. It's called the Wall of Death. What people would do here is they'd drive around, uh, they start on the floor, they drive around, and then eventually they get so fast that they can drive around the vertical wall and the centripetal force keeps them in there. Right, but you can only do that if you're travelling fast enough. Crazy, 
Okay. Uh, what's even more crazy is it's tempting to think this lady down here, well, she's got a sidecar in her side side box in her car there. Maybe she's got like a, know, a parachute or or an airbag or something like that. What she actually had in there was a lion. <laughs> well, you, you look at things like that. <laughs> Why? You know. But, but right. There is literally no spiritual reason behind that other than it's an entertaining photo. That's a crazy risk, right? That's a stupid risk to take. Let's think about a more spiritual but still extreme risk. So I want to show you another picture from the 1930s. So this is much more of a spiritual reason, um, but still pretty extreme compared to what we face. So this is a, a lady who was on a canoe uh, in the 1930s. Uh, this is taken in Rwanda. So she's in the deepest, darkest uh, Rwanda, uh, and she is going across a lake which had crocodiles in it, in a dugout canoe with a bunch of Rwandan guys. I dare say some of them she might have known, some of them she wouldn't have done. But she was taking this journey to go to an... She's a white lady, an English lady. She was taking this journey to go to an island that was in the middle of the lake. Um, and on this island, it's not like a treasure island, it was basically a leper colony. Uh, and she was going there every day. This was her daily journey to go and work on a leper colony, tending to wounds, redressing bandages, basically being a nurse out there. And then she'd get back on the canoe and go back again. But she did it because she believed she was called to do that. An extreme risk, but a spiritual one, as opposed to driving around with a lion in your sidecar. Well, would anybody uh, do that? You might think a bit of a random photo to show. That the lady in that photo is actually Claire's grandma, so, uh, that's, which is interesting from her family history's uh, sake. But I'm not saying that that's the kind of thing that we should be doing. Unless, of course, you're called to it. In which case, go for it, of course. So Nina's shaking her head uh, right now. If you're called to it, if you feel there's a calling on your life and you feel that God is saying something to you, are you prepared, are we all prepared, to take a risk about it? Now, this lady took a massive extreme risk. The risks that we are called to take are nothing like that. So what does a risk look like for us? I'll give you an example. Okay, so Claire, um, Chris recently was talking about Alpha, and I know, and I struggle with this, that there are people that I could invite to Alpha, but I'm worried about asking them because I don't want to take a risk. You know, I don't want to risk my friendship with them. I don't want to risk them going, oh, you're like, you know, go to church and all this kind of stuff. You know, it's a risk. Isn't it? But we are called, the Bible tells us, to go and convert people, to go and bring people to church, to tell people about Jesus. And that's one easy way in which we can do that. But are we prepared to take that risk? Sometimes taking a risk might be, for example, you've had a bit of a falling out with somebody, you know, and, and you want to ask their forgiveness, or you want to bring something up so that they can forgive you or, or something, but you don't want to go and talk to them about it because it's a risk. But you know, or there's a part of you that thinks, I think God's telling me to do this, but we don't want to step out there. We don't want to, we don't want to take um, that risk. Uh, sometimes, for example, it's because there's something going on with you, but you don't want to let somebody in. You don't want to open up about something because that's taking a risk. And so uh, these are extreme risks, these photos. Of course they are. But if we bring it down into our situation, are we prepared to then take a risk with the things that are happening in our life if it brings us closer to Jesus, which is the whole point. Ruth, would you mind coming up uh, at this point? Um, I haven't had a chance to talk to Ruth uh, this morning yet, but I did prep her up about this a few days or so ago. There was a prayer meeting last month uh, where Ruth gave a word, uh, and I thought that this word is bang in line with this idea of taking a risk. So we talked a little bit about it, and I thought, if you don't mind, Ruth, if you're happy sharing it. Is this microphone on? Which one? That one. Thank you, Sue. You've got no space there, Ruth. Yeah, um, 
What it was that I felt God was talking to me about breaking walls down. And being British, we have this um, very um, cultural tendency to um, say, yes, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, you know. And what I realized was a bit like Will was saying about taking risks and and being almost, we get into our little Christian group with our Christian friends that we're comfortable with, but sometimes we can be at work or, in my case, down the horse yard, and there is somebody whose life's falling apart, and they're going, yes, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. And I just felt really challenged about praying to, for walls to be broken down, walls that we would be approachable, that we'd be people that people can talk to. Um, and, yeah, it means taking risks. I mean, I've had, I had a very, very bad week this week. Um, uh, at the moment, I'm in a job where it feels as though managers have no idea what we do in our job and make ridiculous decisions and everybody's very stressed and you can feel powerless to do anything about it. And then I was reading the other day, um, Daniel, in my daily readings. Daniel wasn't a bad chap, you know, he loved God, he prayed, he probably went to church or synagogue or whatever it was. He wasn't a bad guy, but gosh, wasn't life hard to him? And I thought, but you know what, because he worshipped God and he believed, even though he was having a terrible time and, you know, he lost his job and they chucked him in prison because he worshipped God, what happened? Miracles. So just, I think we all, another thing was about breaking walls down. If you want miracles, you will have, be challenged because it's about God's strength in us. It's not about that we're all together and we're clever or we're gifted. It is about letting God use you. And I think at the moment there's quite a few people in church who are really going through quite horrible times and really questioning and saying, God, where are you? And I think it's, a, it's an opportunity for God to actually do something amazing. But we have to keep saying, you know, it's up to you, God, and, and let him break those walls down. And sometimes it means losing your job. Sometimes it means difficulty. Sometimes it means being vulnerable to people outside and you don't know what they're going to do but that's how God's going to work and that's how by us being available vulnerable maybe hurt maybe kicked about <laughs> but yeah it's, um... okay thanks okay. thank you yeah really powerful I heard I wasn't at that prayer meeting Claire went but, uh, but I heard about that word and I thought that's brilliant and I want to say as well that uh, Rachel and Sue and I when we were talking about this Sunday because the, usually the host and the worship leader and the preacher have a little conflab uh, just to talk about how things are going and Rachel said as well that without knowing that we were talking about this that she really felt like God was saying to her that, that, that God wants us to take risks and that doesn't mean going to what well, it might mean it doesn't mean going to Aranda and going to a leper colony on a canoe across crocodile our infested waters but it does mean that if there's something that's stopping you from going to God and it's a risk to you to try to break that down that wall down whatever it is take that risk you know how many times has there been ministry time for example and we're going to do ministry time at the end of this how many times has there been ministry time where you've you've thought oh I could ask for that ah, but I won't bother I'm comfortable uh, right, I've done it, uh, totally honest, I've done it. I think we've all done it, if we're honest. Why not break that wall down and go and ask uh, for some ministry? You don't know where it's going to go. We'll, we'll do a ministry team 
uh, little thing as we're doing ministry time uh, at the end of this. Let me encourage you to take risks, whatever that risk looks like for you in your Christian walk. If you just sit where you are and don't go to where God is and don't try to take risks, in your, you're probably not going to grow that much. So let me encourage you. Uh, about that as well. And Sue, in a second, uh, when I finish, we'll talk about how we're going to do ministry t- uh, time with communion uh, at the end of this. So third and uh, finally, what else can we learn from the uh, wise men? So they traveled a long way to meet Jesus where he was. They took risks in their endeavor to go closer to Jesus. Thirdly, they gave sacrificially. So let's think about this journey for a second. The whole round trip could have easily taken a year, could have done easily. That would have cost them a lot of money. Then there's the cost of the gold and the the incense and and the myrrh. It would have cost them a lot of money. But what they didn't do was they didn't then get to Jesus and find a savior and then go, oh, Jesus, we've come a long way, bless us. They they still gave to him. They still gave sacrificially because they wanted to worship him and they gave massively uh, through that. Let me put this in the context of having kids. Okay, right. So has anybody ever wondered, what's the point in kids? Would you ever look at a kid and then go, I'm glad that kid's somebody else's? So so (laughs) the point being, if you took emotion out of the decision to have kids, the decision to make kids, apart from the obvious of keeping the human race going, uh, but the decision to have kids literally makes no sense. From a purely logical perspective, apart from keeping the human race going. Uh, Let's see, they they caused the mother a lot of discomfort during pregnancy, and then there's a whole birthing. I've no idea what that's about, you know, obviously. Uh, And then when they're two, uh, or when they're babies, rather, you're knackered because you you never get to sleep because they're never sleeping. You hit two years old, and they've got a better social life than you have. Uh, And then they get to teenage years, and they're always out, and you say to them, oh, can't you just be in because we want to talk to you, we want to spend time with you, we want you to be here. And then they hit their mid-20s and they're still there and you're saying, we don't want you to be here, you know. Um, but if you, if you took the emotion out of the decision, to ha- based purely on logical reasons, apart from the logic of keeping the human race going, there isn't actually a logical reason to have kids. But we have kids because we want to love them. And we do love them, and we love them to bits, you know. But from a logical perspective, if we were an emotionless uh, thing and didn't have the instinct to keep our race going, what would be the purpose of having kids? You might think, where are you going with this, seriously? What is this all about? It raises the example of, and anybody in here who is a parent, I think, will agree with this bit. As a parent, you would give everything to that kid. you'd, You'd be prepared to make the ultimate sacrifice for your child. You would die for your child. Anybody who's a parent would understand that. Not necessarily a parent. You might have found a cause you want to die for, even if you're not a parent. Why are we talking about this? I suppose there's a causation question going on here. Do we sacrifice of ourselves to something because we love it so much? Inevitably, yeah, that's true. Of course, there will be some truth in that. But can you flip it on its head? If we sacrifice something to something else, would we grow to love it more? And I think the answer to that is yes. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So where your treasure, your money, etc. is, your heart is there as well. And so actually it goes both ways. Yes, we sacrifice things because we love them. Kids, we don't sacrifice kids. But yes, we sacrifice of ourselves because we love things. We love kids, uh, for example. Or we give to a charity because we believe in it. But a causation can go both ways. If you want to grow to love something more, you can actually make yourself, force yourself to sacrifice more to it, to give more to it, because then a bit of your heart goes with it as well. 
And so let me encourage us all to apply that to our own walk with Jesus. If we all, and I hope we all are, are wanting to grow in our relationship with Jesus, what's one thing practically we could do? Actually, we could sacrifice more to him. We could give more to him. Money or time or efforts or endeavor. If we do more, if we actively make ourselves do more for Jesus, I totally believe that heart then goes with it and the causation goes both ways. It's not giving to Jesus because we love him. That is partly true. It's the other way around as well. If we want to grow in our relationship with Jesus, we choose to give more to him and our heart goes with it as well. So in a second, we're, we're going to finish. And I'm going to hand back to Sue, uh, Rachel. We're going to do some worship and some communion. Sue will explain that, how that will work. But as we move into this next bit, let me encourage us about what I right at the start said are the three most important things, the bottom three things uh, on this PowerPoint slide. The whole point of this sermon and all of the sermons in, in the Advent series are how can we get better at seeking God? And last week, Craig talked about waiting with, with Anna and Simeon. This week, it's the example of a magi. They drove, drove, they went to Jesus. They traveled a long way to Jesus. They, they didn't think, Jesus, come and meet me where I am. They actively went and pursued him. Secondly, they took risks, but they knew it was the right thing to do. They took massive risks compared to what we're called to do. Thirdly, they gave sacrificially. So as we move into a time of ministry, a time of communion, let me encourage you just to keep those things in your mind while Sue talks about what's going to happen next. So Sue, back over to you, please.